Amen. Have you ever had one of those conversations about Christianity where you're you're talking to someone and the words that you're using kind of have this out-of-body experience? The words that you're using, you're like, that sounds ridiculous. There was a guy who died on a cross, and he was perfect, and then three days later, he resurrected from the dead and then ascended up to heaven, and one day, it's like, do you ever have one of those moments where you're just like, this sounds a little nuts? It really does. I mean, don't get nervous. I'm not going heretical here, so calm down. All the elders are like ready to rush the stage. (laughs) My point is, from a human perspective, if you've ever kind of had that human moment where it kind of broke through, from from a human perspective, let's admit it, it does sound ridiculous. It sounds impossible. Spiritually dead people becoming alive. Those who are enemies of God being adopted into his family as dearly beloved sons and daughters. A lifetime of sin and rebellion against your creator is forgiven instantly. The moment you put your faith in him. All through faith. And the answers to all those questions, as impossible as they may seem, is yes, that is the reality Christianity sounds impossible from a human perspective, but not from a divine perspective. And until the divine Holy Spirit does its work in the heart of a non-believer, until the heart of the listener becomes soft, it does remain impossible, and sometimes it even seems ridiculous to someone who has not been transformed by the power of the gospel, yes. And Jesus is going to teach a master class today in dealing with those people who would say that Christianity is impossible. Let's jump over to Matthew. Hopefully you're still there, Matthew 22. If you're visiting with us, which many of you are, thank you. We are just going through the book of Matthew, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and hopefully the, name, the main point of my sermon is the main point of the passage. That's called expositional. We're exposing the meaning of the text. And then we are uh, hopefully applying it and coming into submission of it. Last week, we looked at the first of three brief encounters between Jesus and his various opposing groups. They're trying to trap him. We saw the Pharisees and their buddies, the Herodians, actually, correction, their enemies, the Herodians, were trying to reduce the claims of Jesus into a hotly debated political topic. Should we pay taxes or not pay taxes? Jesus masterfully refused to let them push him in a corner and instead push back against the trap of reductionism. You can't reduce Christianity to uh, just a few issues. It breeds spiritual compromise, hypocrisy, and an identity crisis because Christianity, we said, is a supreme allegiance. It is not just a single issue. This week, the Sadducees shoot their shot. Let's look back at chapter 22 and verse 23. Just that first verse. The same day, the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question. That same day. Must have been a Monday. So Jesus is getting pounded. First, you get the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, here comes the Sadducees, right? The same day. The Sadducees are an elite group of the Sanhedrin. They are the ruling council, the elders of the Jewish religion. The Sadducees approach Jesus with this question. But exactly who are the Sadducees? We first saw them actually way back in chapter 3, 
with John the Baptist when they showed up at his baptism with their friends, the Pharisees. What the heck is going on out there? A race that I didn't know was happening? We saw them back in chapter 3 when they showed up with the Pharisees. And John the Baptist, remember, saw them from a distance and said, You brood of vipers, making friends really fast. You brood of vipers, why are you here? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, John the Baptist said. Not a group the disciples are real friendly with, the Sanhedrin and the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. We, we know they are antagonistic towards Jesus and his disciples. They're also, again, lumped in with the Pharisees and the scribes as being under God's judgment for their covenant failures. Remember, the Jewish leadership failed in their mission. God said, here's my covenant, the Messiah will come through you, bring it to the whole world, right? But what they did was make it about themselves and their kingdom. And Jesus says, not only am I coming to save the lost, I am coming to bring judgment on you, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the high priests, the scribes, because of what you have done to my kingdom. He's bringing judgment on them, and, and they know it. But look at something again in verse 23 that is highly relevant to our passage this morning. The verse tells us that they believed there was no resurrection. Okay, so isn't resurrection like a new concept? Like, isn't that like a New Testament thing? Like, didn't that whole thing start with Jesus? Short answer, not really. Most Jews actually expected a resurrection as part of the new kingdom of the Messiah. It was part of the deal. Scholar N.T. Wright says, evidence suggests that by the time of Jesus, most Jews either believed in some form of resurrection or at least knew that it was standard teaching. Most importantly, Jesus believes in the resurrection because Jesus has already predicted his own resurrection. He's talked about it. He's taught about it. So the Sadducees are rejecting the common understanding and as we'll soon see, the biblical doctrine of the resurrection. And as you can imagine... That's what they want to talk about. They want to talk about the resurrection. Everybody comes with their, their thing, right? The Herodians come with the tax thing. Now the Sadducees are coming with the resurrection thing. And as they don't believe in a, res a resurrection, they try to throw down this riddle, a ridiculous riddle in an attempt to prove the impossibility and the absurdity of such a crazy idea as the resurrection. Let, let's see how they lay this out. Look at verse 24 again. And they say, Teacher, again, a little bit of, uh, of uh, trying to butter him up a little bit, shall we say. Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children and his brother, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died. And having no children, his wife, he left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third, on down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. And so in the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife shall she be? For they all had her. If this riddle hurts your head, it's supposed to hurt your head. The point is, they're trying to be as absurd as possible. Hopefully to show that a belief in the resurrection then is absurd. It's a, it's a technique with a fancy name called reductio ad absurdum, which means you're trying to make an example of just thinking of the most crazy example you possibly can do and therefore say, ha, neener, neener, it doesn't work, right? That's a technical term. 
Jesus, they say, Jesus, riddle us this. Here, just hypothetically speaking, okay, you believe in this resurrection thing? Okay, great. Now, now we know about our, our law. We'll explain that in a minute. So a married man dies. He has no kids. And so following the law, then his brother marries the wife to carry on the family line. Got it? No problem. Cool. Except there's seven brothers and they all die. And so now this resurrection comes around that you're talking about. And who's she married to in the resurrection? Because she had seven husbands. Huh? 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 What are you going to do? What are you going to do with that? I'm not sure if Jesus ever rubbed his forehead or that little part, the bridge of your nose. Like, but if, if he did, I would bet it was probably this day. Probably this day he was doing that. Let's, let's unpack what's going on with the law, which is behind this crazy example. This is levirate law. It was a position that if a man died, he had no children. It was the duty of the brother then to marry the wife so that the family name could carry on. Right now, all of you are thinking... Ew, like what, what, what is that? We go and we think like that in 2022 America. But back in the formative phases of Israel, it was all about the family line. If, if, if there was a man who died and he had no children, think about it. Where, where does the family name go, right? You, you want to have a big, strong family. You want to build Israel. So they had this part of the law. This probably was never ever used. There, there's hints of it in the book of Ruth that we see, but we don't really have any examples in scripture that say that this was actually done. It's probably an outlier. And so again, the Sadducees are being ridiculous and picking this little tiny corner of the law and making a ridiculous example out of it. And cultural context, again, is the key there. Second, the Sadducees are making a fatal doctrinal error here. They're assuming that the resurrection will be similar, if not exactly the same to this life. So they're assuming that there will be marriage in the resurrection. They're, they're assuming that we're going to be exactly like we are, and that is not scripturally correct. They commit the fatal flaw of engagement, which is actually not understanding your opponent's position. They're, they're picking a fight about the resurrection, and they don't understand the resurrection. In the resurrection, we will be different than we are today. We will have perfect bodies. Can I get an amen? Not like... Not, Wow. Not like an Instagram perfect body. I'm talking about like, you know, healthy perfect body, like one that doesn't get sick or doesn't get old or lose hair or anything like that, okay? Jewish doctrinal error about the resurrection still persists today. Because I love you, I have some pictures from Israel, right? When you go to Israel, you're looking at the Mount of Olives, and you'll see all those are graves, and they're pointed in one certain direction so that when the Messiah returns... But when he returns, they can all be pointed in the right direction of the Messiah, and they can spring up out of their graves, and they can join him in the afterlife, right? Bummer, bummer, though, because this is full, and so no more people can have graves there, and plus, you can only be really, really rich to have a grave there, so tough luck, I guess. There's one more picture here of the graves, and oh, how did that get in there? Oh, Jesus. This is the Sadducees. The Sadducees, their, their try, it's their attempt to trap Jesus in an impossibility with one of the core, doc, core doctrines of the faith, the resurrection. They make this hypothetical, absurd example, and they think they got him. They don't. Does this happen today? You betcha. Here's the point. Our opponents think that Christianity is ridiculous. 
Our opponents think that Christianity is ridiculous. Now, I need to draw a very clear distinction here between, between someone who is honestly seeking to know God more. If you're here and you're not a Christian and you do think some of these things are ridiculous, fine, thank you for coming. You're welcome here. That's great, okay? I'm not talking about someone who's honestly seeking God. That's great. Ask the questions, even if you think they're ridiculous. I'm talking about someone who's an opponent of Christianity here. That's what we see. We see the Sadducees are an opponent. They're trying to make a mockery of part of Christianity. Genuinely seeking God is great. Yes and amen. Ask the hard questions. Challenge the Bible. Press into the problems of the faith. Ask about the resurrection. There are answers to all of those things. Shameless plug coming up, and I'll, I'll talk more about this tonight. We're going to have a, a three-week uh, called Defending the Series, Defending the Faith series on Sunday mornings, looking at the apologetics of Peter, Paul, and Jesus himself. And then you may have heard that we're transitioning in the end of June to uh, Problems with Christianity midweek series, where we're going to go through all of common problems with Christianity, the problem of evil, the problem of Christians behaving badly, the problem of exclusivity, the problem of all of that stuff. And so press into the Bible. We want Highlands to be a place where you can ask those questions and you can get those answers. But the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees are not genuinely seeking Jesus. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to make a mockery of him. They reject Jesus as the Messiah. They reject his authorities, his authority, and the Sadducees reject this impossible doctrine of the resurrection. Likewise, church, we have opponents. We have opponents who think that our faith is ridiculous. We can be shocked by that, but we really shouldn't be shocked by that. The time for being shocked that there are people, probably even the majority of Americans, that think what we believe is ridiculous is long gone. It is. Realize that. Most of the world thinks you're weird. That's okay. Stay weird, right? That's the way it is. We are in the minority, and the culture will continue to turn against us. Instead of being shocked, expect it. There's a spiritual reason for it. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, one verse in verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This is what's happening here behind the scenes. People have not been spiritually enlightened. So yes, it's going to seem ridiculous to them. Let's not get mad. Let's not get offended. Let's not stay silent. But let's expect it and understand that's the ball game. That's what we're dealing with here. What do people think is ridiculous about our faith? Lots of things. Why would you be in church when it's 115 degrees in the sanctuary on a Sunday morning? How can a good God possibly exist if there's evil and suffering in the world? How can there be only one way to God that's ridiculous? How can we even think that this, this silly book made up of myths and half-truths is reliable? That's ridiculous. How can you say homosexuality is a sin that's so mean? What about miracles? Miracles are scientifically impossible, you silly Christian. I could go on. Church, understand the times. Our opponents think that Christianity is ridiculous. 
So what do we do about it? Well, at the risk of sounding very reductionistic myself, be like Jesus. Stand firm and declare what the truth of the scripture actually is. So first of all, stand firm. Look at verse 29. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong. Wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus doesn't seem very loving here. He doesn't seem very cuddly, happy Jesus, right? Just very, very firm. Nope, you're wrong. You don't understand the scriptures, and you don't understand the power of God. Again, think of who he's talking to. Guys who have the scriptures memorized. You don't get it. You don't understand the scriptures. It's crazy to think about. And again, I want to make this clear. He's very firm with who he needs to be very firm with. Not everybody. He's loving and gentle with those who are repent, repentant and those who want to seek him. But with those who will oppose him, he is strong and he is firm. Not those who are generally seeking God. There's a big difference. If your neighbor comes to you and says, you know, I've been thinking about this. I don't really think there is a God, you know. Please don't say to him, you are wrong. You know neither the scriptures nor the power of, the, of God. Good day, sir. <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about here. But if someone is making a mockery of Christianity, as the Sadducees are doing here, and pressing to the point of ridiculous, we have to push back. Look at what Jesus does here. First, he tells them plainly, you are wrong. And then he tells them why. Because, don't miss that, because you don't know Scripture. And you don't know the power of God. Let me tell you, I have had some conversations with people in the past where, you know, you have one of those conversations and you look back and you're just like, ah, I should have said this, I should have said that, I could have said that. When he said that, I could have said this. One of the things I regret the most is when someone gets into that territory where they are mocking the faith, just not being more firm and just saying, you're wrong. You're just wrong. You don't know the scriptures. We have to be clear. We cannot be soft. You have to say, this is not correct, and here's why. That's not what the scripture says. You don't know scripture, and you don't know the power of God. The Sadducees are making a false assumption, again, of how resurrection life is going to look. And it's incorrect according to scripture, and so Jesus pushes back. So here's the point. We must push back against scripturally incorrect views. We must push back against scripturally incorrect views. J. Gresham Machen, if you went to midweek, you'd know who that is. The great theologian and seminary professor in the early 1900s said this, false ideas are the greatest obstacles to the reception of the gospel. False ideas are the greatest obstacles to the reception of the gospel. Puritan Matthew Henry wrote, all errors arise from not knowing the scripture. So what's the application here? church. You can bet where I'm going with this, right? Know the scriptures. We have to have a solid understanding of the biblical worldview. This doesn't mean you have to be a Greek or Hebrew nerd. It means you have to know what the Bible says. You have to know why it says what it is. And part of the job of the elders is providing you with solid biblical preaching, Bible studies, care groups. But the other part, guys, is it's on you. You've got to get after it. 
got to get after biblical knowledge. We need to be able to spot a false idea a mile away, and we need to know why it's wrong. Why is homosexuality wrong? Did Jesus claim to be God or not? Who is God according to Scripture? The reality is here that the Sadducees had such a deficient understanding of Scripture that they had a faulty view of God himself. I mean, think about that. Jesus must have been shaking his head in disbelief. You don't think, you don't think the resurrection is possible? Have, guys, were you, did you, were you paying attention in Sunday school at all? Did you, did you understand? We're talking about Yahweh here. The sovereign creator, all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful. Anybody remember any of those times he, dr- he dramatically intervened in the history of the nation of Israel? The Red Sea, anybody? No? I'm up to Acts in my yearly Bible reading. The Apostle Paul was arrested for, for preaching the gospel. One of the things he was in trouble the most was this concept of the resurrection. And there's one powerful, powerful verse in Acts 26, 8, where he is up against, I think it's Felix. And he, he's like, why is this so incredible? He says, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? We're dealing with God here. So why is the resurrection impossible again? The Sadducees don't understand the scriptures, so naturally they don't understand the power of God in which it proclaims. So not only are they scripturally incorrect, now their knowledge of God himself is deficient. They're saying that God isn't powerful enough to do this stupid idea that we can't think of in our own minds called the resurrection. We're talking about again, look at this, they profess to be followers of God, don't they? In church, we will continue to see opponents from outside the church, but guess what? We're also going to see opponents from inside the church too. More and more, we are seeing progressive Christianity and liberal churches thinking that the core historic orthodox tenets of the faith are ridiculous. We see it in the battleground, again, of gender, marriage, and sexuality for sure, but also in some doctrines of the deity of Christ, his atoning sacrifice. Go on YouTube, you'll find anybody who claims to be a Christian, and then they're like, yeah, I'm not so sure Jesus actually atoned for anything on the cross. It's like, what? Are you, what? And you still claim to be a Christian? Not only do we have to know the Bible, but we've got to know who we are as a church, what we believe and why, and we must push back against scripturally incorrect views. But how? Jesus shows us. Look at verse 30. He says, for in the resurrection, he's going on to explain, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read, I love it when he says that, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Jesus explains what the resurrection will be like, and thus he corrects the unbiblical understanding of the Sadducees. He's like, this is not going to be just an extension of this life. He tells them your little ridiculous riddle is wrong because people are not going to be married in the resurrection. So it doesn't matter how many times she's been married because people aren't going to be married in the resurrection. Why? Because we're going to be like angels. This does not mean that we will become angels. 
That is a false understanding of this passage. Our loved ones who have passed on are not our guardian angels. We do not become guardian angels for other people when we pass on. We don't see that in Scripture. But instead, Jesus tells them that they will become like the angels in the resurrection with our perfected, glorified bodies. They don't need to sleep because we don't, have, we don't get tired anymore. We don't need to eat because we won't have hunger anymore. There's no procreation, so therefore there's no marriage anymore. We have totally different, perfect bodies in the resurrection. That's what Jesus was saying. That's where you're wrong. You don't even understand the resurrection. It might be a disturbing idea. To I mean, I get it. I can't imagine spending a week without Mel, nevertheless, eternity without Mel. So it's a little disturbing when you think about it. But I did find one helpful clarification from R.T. France. He says, Jesus doesn't say the love between those married on earth will vanish. But rather, it implies that it will be broadened so that no one is excluded. A love for our spouses won't vanish. But, but here's the bigger reason why. Because what does the marriage covenant point to? It points to the perfect covenant that we have with God through Jesus Christ. It's, it's a shadow. It's an imperfect yet beautiful shadow. It points to the ultimate covenant that Jesus, that we will have with Jesus when, when he returns. The marriage supper of the Lamb, as resurrection, as Revelation puts it. And as good as marriage is for this life, it points us to the ultimate covenant we have with God and Jesus Christ. And Jesus goes on to prove this scripturally. He gives this model of how to push back. He's, he's, he's been firm in his response and said, no, you're wrong. And then he shows us how to push back. And he calls on Exodus. And he does that really, really, really specifically. Because he could have gone other places. He could have gone to Daniel. He could have gone to some other places to talk about the resurrection. But he goes to Exodus in the account of the burning bush. Why? Here's why. Because the Sadducees don't accept any other part of Scripture except the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And what was their first example anyway? They said, didn't Moses say? Is that, okay, you want to talk about what Moses said? Let's talk about what Moses said. Let's go there. That's what he says. Let's talk about it. So look at the mastery that Jesus uses. And he goes back to Exodus chapter 3, the account of the burning bush, which, which Bob read for us. In Exodus 3, 13 to 15, we'll just zoom in on this little part. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, well, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is exactly what Jesus says back to the Sadducees. This is his biblical argument back. He's like, guys, sorry, haven't you read Exodus 3? Maybe you forgot that part in Exodus. He says he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In this part in Exodus, God drops the unique name, I am which is weird because it's not really, you know, I am sent them, sent me to you. It's like, that doesn't make any sense. Right? But, but I am has to do more with his being and who he is than his actual specific name. 
The name is actually where we get Yahweh or Jehovah, where that comes from, the root of the Hebrew word, I am. But, but God is saying here, by saying I am, he's simply saying I exist, I have always existed, I exist now, and I will always exist in the future. There is no time where I am not the one. There's no time where I am not. He just says, I am. God that transcends time. And he connects that with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the big dogs, right? The patriarchs. But one problem, they've been, even when Moses, they've been gone and dead for centuries. So why in the world, in front of this burning bush, is Yahweh saying that I'm still the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob because there's still a connection to what's coming in the resurrection? One commentator says it like this, when Yahweh appeared to Moses hundreds of years after the patriarchs died, he remained their God, implying that after death, they lived on to worship him, and most importantly, they will be bodily resurrected in the future. How does Jesus push back against these scripturally incorrect views? He clarifies what scripture actually says. And so we are to do the same thing. We are to clarify the actual truth of Scripture. We are to clarify the actual truth of Scripture. Jesus is firm in pushing back, but again, noticing, notice how he does that. He uses the same biblical character that they brought up. He uses a book of the Bible that they would accept. Then he clarifies it. And church, I'll hit it again. How well do we know Scripture We'll never know it as well as Jesus did. But are we getting after knowing Scripture? Some of you guys tap out. Some of you are like, I just don't have that brain. I can't read. I can't do it. I, I want to say this as lovingly as I can. That's nonsense. It really is. And, and part of the new life that we have in Christ is a new, a new appetite. Many of us can tell stories of, I read the Bible and I liked it. And I used to not like it. I don't like reading at all. And now I read the Bible and I read books about the Bible. Why is that? Because God gave you a new heart. That's how it works. You've got to walk in it. Have you read the whole Bible? Let's start there. Get a plan and start today. Take notes. Write down observations. See how the pieces fit together in the big story of the Bible. Use a good story, uh, um, study Bible. Do we talk about Scripture with each other? Do we go to a Bible study or a care group? Do we have family devotions at home with our kids? We don't have to be masters of theology at home with our kids. Just read the Bible and talk about it. I can give you resources if you would like some. We have to resist the worldview world that says that we can't actually know the truth of Scripture because that pushes, that pushes right in our face and says, well, you guys are reading Scripture. How do you even know if it's true or not? Because Jesus told us it's true. Because it's consistent. Because it's a worldview that makes the most sense. Because we have nine million other reasons. We have to resist that worldview. There are some things in the Bible that are hard to understand. Even Peter said that. He's like, I don't know, Paul writes some stuff and it's really hard. I don't get it. Right? Peter said that. Okay? So, yeah, there are some things in here that are really hard to understand. The middle, the core of the gospel is so crystal clear. Who God is is so crystal clear. Who we are in light of God is so crystal clear. Give yourself to the study of scripture. 
And again, so much noise is made by those opponents of Christianity that flat out just get Scripture wrong. If you ever read Bart Ehrman or Richard Dawkins and the God delusion nonsense and all that stuff, which I, I actually urge Christians to read that, read it. And you'll be both horrified and entertained, right? But so much, these are smart guys, but they get scripture flat wrong. They just take a passage of scripture and completely twist it and then build a whole chapter on it of how it's so dumb. It's like, yeah, dumb because you got it wrong. That's why. Scripture didn't say that. I'm completely amazed and entertained at just how wrong they are in their understanding of Scripture. And Jesus says the same thing. These are the PhDs of that day. He says, you guys are wrong. You don't understand Scripture. There will be a resurrection, and I'm here to make it happen by being resurrected first. If Jesus is not resurrected, then we will not be resurrected either. But once again, Jesus shows the depth of his fulfillment of Scripture by not only showing the truth of Scripture, he is actually going to fulfill the truth of Scripture by being resurrected himself. Not that long ago, in chapter 20, he predicted his resurrection. Verse 18, Jesus himself says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Jesus believes in the resurrection because he knows he will be resurrected. He taught specifically on the resurrection. If you go to John chapter 5, starting in verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear it will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when we all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus knows there's a resurrection. Jesus teaches there's a resurrection. Jesus pushes back against this, this unscriptural idea of there's no resurrection. He said, I am not the God of the dead. I am the God of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. He shut down the Sadducees just like he shut down the Pharisees and the Herodians. Last week, Jesus fought against the trap of reductionism. This week, he fights back against the trap of impossibility. And for us, we need to remember that we're dealing with our opponents who think the doctrines of Christianity might be impossible. We have to remember that's how it is because they're not Christians yet. So maybe I'll say it this way. Christian doctrines sound impossible to those who are not Christian. Christian doctrines sound impossible to those who are not Christian. Maybe you can remember when you came to faith, there were some of these doctrines that you're just like, yeah, not so sure about that one. Maybe there were doctrines that you struggled to believe. Maybe there are doctrines that you're still struggling to believe. Yes, amen, let's talk about that. It's okay. Part of the mission of the church is to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ. Again, Highlands needs to be a place where we ask the hard questions. Push back in Scripture. It will hold, it's going to hold firm. It's true. You can ask the hard questions. But our opponents, again, our opponents 
not those who are genuinely seeking to know more, but those who are seeking to make a mockery of Christianity, those who oppose us, that say Christianity is ridiculous. We have to push back against the scripturally incorrect views by clarifying the actual truth of what scripture says. All the while, remember, Christian doctrines are still going to sound impossible to those who are not yet Christians. Paul says this in Romans. Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. It says, For the mind that is set on the flesh, the mind that's sinful, the mind that has not been renewed, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, watch this, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We see again another uh, reinforcement of this doctrine. It's not that there's a big scale in heaven when we get there, right? It's not that your good deeds are going to outweigh your bad deeds and hope that you get let in. Romans just told us that doesn't exist. There is no skill. If you are not a child of God, you cannot please God. So what has to happen first? You have to become a child of God. The Holy Spirit has to open your eyes. The goal is never just to win a debate or to prove our knowledge. The goal is to see God work in such a way in a human heart that what seemed ridiculous and impossible now seems sweet and amazing and good. We want to see the the Spirit do that work We want to see someone's hard heart open their eyes to their sinfulness, to their need for a Savior outside of themselves, and the realization that one has been provided for them in Jesus Christ. Christian doctrines sound impossible to those who are not Christians, but it's vital to remember that while we're dealing with those who think what we believe is ridiculous and we push back, we need to always be centering everything on the gospel of Jesus Christ and let the gospel, let the word of God do the work through the spirit of, the God, of God. The Bible's called the sword of the spirit for a reason. We need to use the Bible. We need to rely and stand on the Bible. When the gospel is preached or presented in God's word, it's the spirit that softens hearts, opens minds, and transforms lives so that what was once impossible and ridiculous, now it's not only possible, but it's beautiful. And church, as we run into resistance, which we will, maybe even in our own household, maybe even our own kids, our family members, our friends in the neighborhood, people we work with, people online, let us live authentic lives of Christian character and always be holding the word of God out to hope for life in a dark world. We don't oppose people. We oppose false ideas. But let's realize that God is the one who does the work to transform hearts and minds so that what once was seeming impossible is now completely possible and beautiful. Father, we thank you for this passage, this, this depth of seeing, again, Jesus himself pushing back against false ideas, pushing back against the religious leaders, Lord, pointing to the hope of the resurrection. And Lord, as we, as we even think about just that, that, that one day the bodies that we struggle with that are prone to illness and are prone to age and wearing down and prone to accidents and sickness and anything else, Lord, one day they will be 
completely perfect. In the resurrection, we will spend with you in eternity. But Lord, until then, we have much work to do. Would we be faithful as we come across those who think that Christianity is impossible? Lord, would we hold out the word of life and would you please do your work through your word, through your spirit that you have promised to open hearts and minds to the possibility of the gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.